Wake up, America. It's Morning Air with John Morales. Si, senor. Sarah Tafoya. And Glenn Leverins. This is Morning Air. On Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Wake up, America. It's Wednesday, February 1st. Good morning and welcome back to the final hour of Morning Air. I'm John Morales, along with Glenn Leverance and our studio producer, Sarah Tafoya. Thanks so much for making us part of your morning all across America. It's good to be with you on this first day of February. I can't believe that January is now in the rearview mirror. February is Black History Month, and all this week we are also celebrating National Catholic Schools Week across our nation. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook at Morning Air Show, and you can always send an email directly, morningair at relevantradio.com. On Wednesdays, I always take a, a brief moment to remind you to pray to St. Joseph, the husband of our Blessed Mother Mary and the foster father of Jesus. He is a powerful intercessor, so go to Joseph. I want to bring in our morning air team once again, Glenn and Sarah. Glenn, what are a few of the big stories making headlines uh, this hour? Well, guys, coming up today in Memphis, the funeral for uh, Tyree Nichols, the young man who was uh, beaten at the hands of police uh, to the point of losing his life a few weeks back. All five of those police officers have been uh, charged with second-degree murder, and uh, the uh, funeral will be attended actually by the vice president, Kamala Harris, will be in Memphis today as well. And it'll be happening at the historic church where uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his final speech uh, before he was assassinated. So uh, I'm sure it'll be an emotional day uh, for everyone there. Yeah, Tyree Nichols, may he rest in peace and uh, may the country find some peace, too, as we uh, strive to uh, make a, a situation of better relations between uh, police and, uh, and those on the streets. Absolutely. As we heard uh, in the last hour from our Rome correspondent, Ashley Narona, uh, Pope Francis said uh, Mass before over a million faithful in Congo uh, this morning, uh, asking the people uh, to forgive those who have harmed them. This is his 40th apostolic trip and the fifth trip to Africa for the Holy Father. Well, you think things get crowded at uh, your parish for Easter or Christmas. Imagine celebrating Mass with a a million others at an airport. (laughs) Uh, This is what happened in Kinshasa, and uh, just uh, amazing. The the Pope uh, held Mass in French. Uh, The homily delivered in Italian, translated in French. And part of his travels this week, good to see him out and about. Uh, He'll be in South Sudan by the weekend, too. Well, that was a a massive crowd, uh, reminiscent of the crowds that uh, JP2, St. John Paul II, used to uh, attract. Uh, These uh, faithful there in Congo, they love the Holy Father. Uh, I saw some some pretty uh, neat images of just the, the cheering, adoring crowds. Yeah, the faith alive and well in Africa with over 50 million Catholics in the Congo. Um, and finally, I understand uh, that the father of the candy uh, peeps is in the news this morning. That's right. The uh, love him or hate him, the uh, sugar-coated uh, marshmallow uh, chick-shaped things that uh, come out at Easter time. Uh, the man who helped mass-produce peeps, Ira Bob Bourne, died Sunday at the age of 98. Um, so, you know, whether you like to eat him or just play with him, uh, the... the, the, uh, the the perpetrator of peeps on us, which have expanded into to bunny shapes as well as chicks, different colors. Uh, Mall of America at one point even had a giant uh, peeps store dedicated just to all things peep. At, uh, at one point, it also he came up with a recipe for uh, 
Hot tamales, another uh, great candy for the movies as well. Oh, man, yeah. Hot tamales are big in our household, but not by me. I am not a fan of that cinnamon flavor, but they they go like hot tamales. They go fast in our house. (laughs) All right, here's a little tidbit for you. I had an old girlfriend that used to call me her hot tamale. Oh, buddy, there we go. Too much. How do you like that? That might have been a little too much, but you know what? Those those peeps, they are making a big, they're a big hit because, like you said, Glenn, they're not just the chicken. They're bunnies, and people are using them to play with. These are not just for eating. And, man, I've seen the dioramas of some of these. I've seen a wall of yellow peeps, one dressed like Where's Waldo. I think it's going to be pretty easy to find that one. (laughs) There's one dressed like he's Pablo Picasso. I mean, they're having a lot of fun, a little too much fun with their food today. That is more peep information than I expected uh, this morning. As always, uh, thanks, Sarah and Glenn. We uh, always start every hour here on Morning Air, always in prayer, giving thanks to our Lord for all the many blessings, always through the intercession of the Mother of God, our Blessed Mother Mary. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady of Guadalupe, patroness of the unborn, patroness of relevant radio, and patroness of the Americas, pray for us. St. Joseph, patron of the Universal Church, pray for us. St. John Paul II, co-patron of relevant radio, pray for us. And we wouldn't dare do a show without the Holy Spirit, so we always pray, come Holy Spirit, come. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. A number of you want to be part of the program this morning, 888-914-9149. Now, there was a huge win on Monday for Mark Houck and for the pro-life movement uh, when a Philadelphia jury found the pro-life Catholic father not guilty on both counts of violating the Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances Act known as the FACE Act. This came after over 25 heavily armed FBI agents stormed his home at dawn last September, pointing guns at his head and then arresting him in front of his wife and seven children. He was charged with violating that FACE Act after an altercation with a Planned Parenthood escort. Listen to Mark Hawk after the verdict, who spoke to CNA Live about how his faith got him and his family through such a difficult time. We couldn't have done it without faith. Um, you know, honestly, from day one, the moment of the arrest, when I found out that this was even an issue, uh, it was it was all a leap of faith, stepping out and trusting in God and his protection. And he's been there every step of the way uh, through his people, through God's people. There's been so many prayers answered. But just his his peace that, you know, was beyond understanding, as, as we know. And and the joy that was filling our heart that God would choose my wife and children worthy uh, to suffer in this way for, for the cause, for the movement, for the church, for the body of Christ. So, um, yeah, we just felt privileged. And faith has brought us to that point where we feel that. So we've grown in faith. We've asked God to give us greater faith. And through today in this process, through Thomas More, through Brian McMonagall's Yes, uh, we have greater faith and trust in God than ever. So we move forward with great, great confidence. 
And joining us live from uh, Chicago for uh, much more on this huge victory for this pro-life Catholic family man, Mark Hawk, is attorney Peter Breen, the vice president and senior counsel at the Thomas More Society. Good morning, Counselor Peter. Thanks so much for joining us. It is great to be with you once again. Congratulations on the huge win. Thank you, John. It, and it is, I mean, it is a huge win for every person of faith in this country, every pro-life person in this country. And we really do need to celebrate it when you get a win like this that was so big, so public. Federal prosecutors do not lose. And we took two of the best. They sent in their top trial attorney from D.C. and an ace from Philadelphia. And we won. You know, all all counts not guilty and uh, just really huge win for the pro-life uh, pro-life people of this country, the people of faith in this country. And to uh, to really defeat uh, the Biden administration, like you said, this it's not an easy feat. It, it was something. It just you, you know, that they come in uh, with every advantage. Uh, the only advantage that a defendant has is that beyond a reasonable doubt standard, and the twelve men and women sitting on that jury. And this this was a jury, you know, city of Philadelphia and and its surrounding areas that, that are in the federal district there. And so, I mean, it was folks. Uh, we had African-American folks, Asian folks, uh, white folks, uh, you know, old, young, uh, male, female. It was a, a varied group. And so, uh, you know, they came together and just, uh, I mean, with they made quick work of it. And so we were very, very blessed by that. And, and I'll tell you, John, a lot of the times our wins, they either come up in the courts of appeal or you just don't hear about them because the cases don't get brought by the other side. You know, the other side's very careful about the cases they bring. You know, it's, it is. I mean, it's, it's so when you get a win like this, where they they stretched this Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances Act well beyond where it was supposed to go, and had we lost this case, it would have been open season on sidewalk counselors, because this was an aggressive abortion escort. He was the the instigator every single time, and we showed that to the jury. And he was a foul and vulgar man. Uh, you know, say horrible things in front of the children. Uh, and, and, and to the sidewalk counselors as well. Uh, and so it really would have been a, a giving a license to aggressive abortion escorts to do provocation and things like that to try to draw some contact and then have the feds swoop down and, you know, send 25 federal agents to the home of our sidewalk counselors. Peter, you, you heard uh, the emotions uh, and the reaction afterwards, right in front of the the courthouse from Mark Hauk and his uh, family after after the verdict. Um, can you give us a, a just a, a taste of his uh, feelings uh, after such a huge win? I mean, Mark is an incredible man. So I see he is a Catholic men's ministry leader. So he gives retreats. He is used to speaking. And we, uh, I mean, not, not to be, uh, uh, I guess we, we could be a little funny about it now. I mean, we, we, we shut him up because we said, look, man, you, you are the defendant in a federal criminal case. You do not want to say anything about this. And so uh, now Mark gets to talk. And, uh, and he is a guy that you know, just loves to share the faith. Uh, you know, he does men, I mean, these just wonderful men's uh, things. I am assuming that the Catholic community and the pro-life community are going to have Mark uh, speaking around the country pretty, uh, pretty busily. Uh, for for the foreseeable future to hear from him, uh, but he, I, mean, I got to sit with those the, the kiddos. I mean, imagine during the trial, he has uh, he has his lovely wife Ryan Marie. There's seven kiddos, you know, from 14 down to two, in two hotel rooms. So he's in court all day, and then he goes home, and he's got kids, but you know, bouncing on the beds, and or he goes home to a hotel, 
uh, kids bouncing on the beds. I mean, just this beautiful family, wonderful expression of the Catholic faith, uh, you know, just, just living it. And um, so marching, Mark and his family deserve this win. And, uh, and I think folks are going to see a lot more from Mark in the years to come because, yeah, I mean, I, I hope he'll be out giving talks here in Chicagoland and, and, and across the Midwest and then going out West and South and, you know, they already knew him in the Northeast, but uh, I think we're all going to get to know him, uh, you know, in the year to come. Well, we're hoping to get him here on uh, Morning Air at some point. Uh, so uh, we're definitely, um, you know, rooting for uh, for Mark. Uh, would you say that uh, this really was in many ways a test case by the Biden administration just to see how far they could intimidate and, and persecute uh, pro-life activists, uh, sidewalk counselors? It, it is because, you know, you've heard about there are a number of face cases around the country, and we found ourselves involved in nearly all of them. Uh, but the other ones are all about kind of the more standard, uh, you know, the sitting in front of the clinic doors, singing hymns, what have you. They didn't deal with sidewalk counselors trying to do their job as sidewalk counselors or as prayer vigil participants outside the clinic. And so th- that was why it was so important to, you know, we hired the best criminal defense attorney in Philadelphia. You know, we threw everything at this case. And so you know, this principle, uh, we, we even during this case, we found something that no court had considered in the 30 years since the FACE Act was passed, that on the floor of the Senate, Senator Ted Kennedy said the act is not intended to cover escorts, the abortion escorts. No court had ever seen that, considered it. Uh, we, t- we, know we have some of the best practitioners over the years, and folks are going, where did you find this? Uh, so we brought that forward. Hopefully, with everything we've brought forward, with the resounding victory here, the Biden administration will give up this, uh, you know, this this line of attack against uh, the sidewalk counselors who are the last line of defense. Uh, They are the last person reaching out to a woman in need who may need those alternatives, just needs a little a little help and support so she doesn't have to have an abortion. Uh, So it's so important to support them. And uh, and hopefully, again, we will we will put a stop to this now. We're joined this morning uh, live uh, from the Windy City, Chicago, by Peter Bream, Vice President and Senior Counsel at the Thomas More Society. Um, uh, P- Peter, can you give us a sense of what w- it was like uh, in the courtroom? How did things uh, play out uh, with the uh, jurors, uh, ultimately finding Mark Houck not guilty on both charges? Well, the, the, the government started the case by bringing up the CEO of Planned Parenthood. And we, you know, we got the relevant documents about her the night before. We got an email the night before the trial started. We got uh, other documents the weekend before. So everything came in late. But we found out, you know, on the eve of trial, that Planned Parenthood actually dismissed this uh, abortion escort for being so uh, violative of their non-engagement policy. You know, so in, in theory, we should never be having these conflicts because the abortion escorts aren't supposed to engage with the sidewalk counselors. Uh, so we find that out. And so she gets on the stand first and we are just reading her. You know, I'm reading. I mean, I, so I did that cross-examination. I'm reading her from her manual. She's having to admit it. She has to admit that this guy's been, you know, a repeat offender. Uh, and that, yeah. And so, so we, that kind of started the trial. Then they get their security director on and he had to explain, you know, there's a minute and a half of video from a bad angle on one camera. And no other video of any of the incidents that the government was charging. It had all been allowed to just be deleted by by Planned Parenthood. They didn't collect any of the video from the six different cameras across the street. 
So he had to sit up there and uh, my co-counsel, who was just this, again, best criminal defense attorney in Philadelphia, Brian McMonigle, he's just destroying this guy. Uh, and then the jury goes home for the night. You know, and then the next day we get Bruce Love, who was the abortion escort, and he just can't he can't keep his story straight. And so it just, you know, as it compounded and compounded and compounded Thursday, it was great. Friday morning, you get Mark Jr., who was brilliant on the stand. You know, he was there the, for the whole time. 14 years old. Saw everything. 14 now. He was 12 at the time. And uh, I mean, just a, I mean, this, this kid puts all of us to shame. I mean, he's out <laughs> praying in Latin and I'm asking wow. him, man, like, where, yeah, what do you, you know, and they, they do homeschooling over there. And he said, well, you know, we're not learning Latin officially other than just the church Latin right now, but I'll get Latin next year. And I'm going, brother, you are, I mean, he, he is, he is a, a, a testament to Mark and Ryan Marie's, uh, uh, you know, parental skills. Uh, so I mean, he gets up and then we close with Mark himself and and I got to tell you, um, you know, he'd sat through all of this. He was tired uh, and he, he came through wonderfully and just and, and and actually he was better on the cross examination when that prosecutor's getting up there trying to, you know, say, oh, you lied about this or that. He was he was sharp and just I mean, it, it, it fought it off very, very well to the point where the prosecutor shouldn't have even shouldn't just shouldn't have bothered by the end of it. Then we give these the closings uh, and then we go to the jury. I, I will tell you one thing happened. Uh, Friday afternoon, the jury deliberated for two hours, told us, sent a note out saying we're deadlocked. So the judge sent them home for the weekend. Monday morning, we walk in and we have multiple notes from the jury. And there's a juror who, who refused to deliberate. And actually, we had to interview, we had to, back in chambers, had to interview every single juror to figure out what was going on in there. So in the middle of their deliberations, the, the guy who was refusing to deliberate, he's excused. We call in the alternate who's out in the suburbs of Philly somewhere, so it takes him an hour or two to get in. And once he's seated, they're supposed to restart their deliberations from the beginning. That, that, that alternate gets in. They restart their deliberations. Within an hour, we have a unanimous not guilty verdict. So that was, that was the, what we had to go through. Because um, you know, we could have had a hung jury if that, if that particular uh, juror who was the problem had stayed on the jury. But instead, we get a you know, juror willing to do his job. And, and not guilty verdict all counts. Well, thank goodness uh, it uh, worked out in your favor. I think at the end of the day, it really was a, a political uh, prosecution uh, with these bogus uh, charges. Uh, uh, final thoughts on uh, what this means uh, for uh, the pro-life movement um, here in this post-Roe world. Well, uh, the Congress is looking into this. You know, they've already set up a subcommittee on the abuse of the FACE Act. You know, we're we're intending on giving them everything we can to, uh, you know, to help that process. And, and people, I mean, folks, the hand of providence, I mean, the good Lord was was guiding this. He is he is watching over us. I mean, sometimes we've got to suffer a little more than maybe we would like. But when we get a big win like this, I mean, we just have to make sure, you know, that the DOJ and the Biden administration are going to try to sweep it under the rug. We've got to make sure they don't forget it. And uh, just keep the faith, keep the hope. Stay out at the clinics. If you go out and pray, if you go sidewalk counsel, do not be afraid. Uh, get on out there. It, it, we've got just wonderful ministries out there, and we are saving babies, and we need to. Uh, now in this post-Dobbs world where the abortion clinics in the states where abortion is legal are busier than ever, we need to be busier than ever in terms of our pro-life activism. Well, Counselor Peter, uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Really appreciate it. Hey, thank you. And thomasmoresociety.org, thomasmoresociety.org if you want more updates and things like that.
Thanks again. Attorney Peter Bream, Vice President and Senior Counsel at the Thomas More Society. We need to take a short break. When Morning Air continues, our spiritual director, Father Marcel Tyone, will join us to discuss what we can learn about disciplining our kids from St. John Bosco. Don Bosco, the patron saint of young people. So stay with us as Morning Air continues on this Wednesday here on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio Act. Teach your children well. And welcome back to Morning Air. I'm John Morales along with Glenn and Sarah. Thanks so much for tuning in to Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app on this Wednesday morning, the first day of the month of February. Our number, if you want to be part of the program, 888-914-9149. Now, yesterday was the memorial of St. John Bosco, also known as Don Bosco, the 19th century Italian priest and founder of the Salesians, named in honor of St. Francis de Sales. St. John Bosco was an enlightened educator, dedicating his life to the welfare of young boys and girls, so he was called the Apostle of the Youth. Don Bosco knew firsthand about discipline, uh, devoting his entire life to forming young, rebellious boys. What can we learn about how and when to discipline our kids from this beloved saint? Joining us live is our spiritual director, Father Marcel Tyone, to talk about some saintly tips on how to discipline a child from St. John Bosco. Father Tyone is the pastor at uh, St. Thomas More Catholic Parish in Narragansett, Rhode Island, and a longtime uh, Relevant Radio and Morning Air contributor. Good morning, Father Tyone. Thanks so much for joining us. It is uh, great to be with you once again. Good morning, and a great topic to think about St. John Bosco, both for parents, but also for clergy, for laity, and uh, and really, I think all of us, it requires a lot of patience to raise children, as everybody knows, and patience to be in all of our relationships. Don Bosco was an amazing uh, saint because he suffered well, right? So in our own lives, the things we suffer can sort of be the, the doorways to growing in virtue and charism, so to speak. So he was the youngest of three boys. And back then in Italy, especially in the rural parts, when your father passed away young and his dad died when he was just just a few years old, two years old, I believe, um, his mother was in abject poverty. So, you know, it was a real tough thing. And and certainly many other children around him suffered the same fate. Um, John Bosco sort of started to learn magic tricks and catechism. And he had this great priest in his life who uh, taught him about St. Francis de Sales. And, and over time, John Bosco uh, would end up finally being ordained a priest, kind of young at 26 because of this this other priest that was able to help him. Um, but he, he ended up reaching out uh, to the needs. Imagine, he, he grew up as a very poor child without any hope uh, of education unless a miracle happened. And a lot of these kids were involved in like gangs and crime and stealing and just very bad language, no go, no religious upbringing, and that's what he was responding to. So he ended up, um, started off with six boys and then many more, and then founded the Salesian Order. But on that road, kind of a rocky road, he ended up having to he set up places uh, that were the forerunners today, what we call the Don Bosco Youth Centers all over the world. The Salesians do great work in the Middle East, uh, in Africa, all over the world. They, they And they use his philosophy. What's his philosophy? So he doesn't just teach them right from wrong, but an encounter with Jesus, confession and mass is part
part of that day, but also sports and acting and theater and nature walks and sort of educating the whole person. And he had a lot of writings. And one of the things that he wrote to his own uh, order as it got bigger was um, to kind of, back then, corporal punishment was was commonplace. Some of us know from our grandparents or great-grandparents, even within families, this was a very accepted way to sort of discipline children uh, and during that time. And he was very much against that. Um, he used to say things like, let's punish our own impatience and our pride rather than take all that negative energy and, and correct the boys in an inordinate way. So he, he believed in being firm, but kind and patient with them um, and kind of looking for the soul in the boy, not just the bad behaviors, but looking through that, below that, and around that whenever possible. And uh, and I think he teaches like sort of a, a patient upbringing with children, grandchildren. Maybe people have difficult relationships in their lives, as we all do at times, but maybe practicing that sort of that intentional patience, um, which is not just an endurance, but maybe trying to, you know, what is it about the child? Uh, every child has its own struggles, his or her own struggles. But, you know, again, John Bosco did the whole person. So sometimes uh, if someone's got trouble at school or something, you know, maybe taking them out on a nature walk, teaching them how to pray, and then being with them when they study, sort of, sort of taking the whole person approach that he did, and the religiosity, the sacramentality, um, the teaching someone how to pray and and making, if you will, religious very devout and holy, but also very fun and appealing. And to this day, that's what the Salesians do, like no one else around the world. They're the the largest or the second largest order in the world with the Jesuits. They're enormous, uh, influential. They have a lot of Catholic schools, but they also have these Don Bosco centers that we're very familiar with. Our parish adopted the one in Aleppo, Syria during the war. We came to know a lot more about them, and hence even about John Bosco's spirituality. But they take them for the day again. They're doing all these other things with them, not just sort of catechism and send them back out into the world. It's really more of a, a Christian community experience, and, and that's what we need to do in our parishes and our families, even within our families. We can do that That maybe at you know family reunions. We all go to Mass together. We can have volleyball, plan things in the summer where there's a bit of religiosity amidst all the other activities we can do as families, and, and really, I think, take from John Bosco the, the if you will, that... that attentive patience uh, that that's surrounded by creativity and how we raise our young people today and he's got something for all of us i think it's challenging for parents today it's very very difficult uh in our culture to to raise children it always has been but particularly today and and i think it's also he his model too um i think it it puts social media in check like it's sort of it's sort of much more physical and intellectual and spiritual rather than this uh video um sometimes they were tempted to give a child a video to watch or something. And that's, I understand that we, we do that to kind of quiet people down and not, not make a disturbance in public. And I understand that the benefits of that for sure. But I think Don Bosco's methodology can help us raise children and, and also be a better disciple and practice uh, patience and take a look at where, where's our own impatience coming at from rather with someone, anyone, even adults. And, and we can ask Don Bosco to pray for us, to teach us and to learn from what the Salesians do. Well, Father Tyone, uh, in uh, preparation uh, for our chat here this morning, I went back and actually watched uh, some excerpts from a movie that was done uh, about the life of uh, Don Bosco. Uh, it's, it's called Mission to Love, and it, the movie was so powerful. It just—I had for, I had watched it years ago, and I hadn't seen it in a long time, and I watched just a little part of it, uh, the part where he's uh, literally dying. Um, you know, he, he suffered from illness, and all the kids are praying for him. And, I mean, these were kids— 
many of these kids were rebellious and disadvantaged boys, uh, juvenile delinquents, and yet he was able to touch their hearts. They absolutely loved uh, Don Bosco, uh, St. John Bosco. And, uh, you know, it, it, it literally brought a tear to my eye just to watch a little bit of that movie yesterday, Father. Yeah, no, and I, I agree. I think, you know, I, I think it's, I've worked in an all-boys school for many years, and you learn over time, too, but but everybody wants to love and to be loved, and, and God is the perfect lover, right? So if we can kind of adopt that, and I, th- I think that's, how does a juvenile delinquent go to, you know, becoming a loving, a spiritual son? And, and it takes, it's just, I think, where someone meets a, a genuine, authentic, loving, spiritual mother, spiritual father, and, and we can do that, you know, parents can do that, being a, a, a authentic spiritual father and mother to one's own children, uh, a child is attracted to that. Um, and it's hard to do some days because of the behaviors or lack of behavior we'd like of of certain things. But I think I do remember I watched that video, now that you say it, many, many years ago. And I'll go back and see it again. But I remember I hadn't seen it maybe in 20 years. So I do recall that film. Uh, Don Bosco, he's still attractive to people today. And the Salesians follow his life and spirituality and his work because it makes a difference. And he's, he's on to some he took Francis de Sales, you know, who the saint that really the pre-Vatican II, Vatican II saint lived, I think, you know, Lumen Gentium, the holiness among the lay people, and really uh, just that document, you know, later on, I think I think Don Bosco, and for, inspired by Francis de Sales, Francis de Sales to this day has influenced so many religious congregations, but also lay people, and he, he's brought holiness to everyone, not just the monasteries and the clergy, but to everyone's call to this way of life. And I, I think uh, Don Bosco lived and died, the spirituality of Francis de Sales, and, and we're so grateful for that. And I, I'd suggest we, we all spend a little time maybe before Lent looking up Don Bosco and watching this film you talked about, but also even even nodding to Francis de Sales this morning that he too has, has a lot to give us and as Don Bosco and another other priest took so much from him as well. So something to pay attention to. Um, Father, a, a final uh, word, maybe a, a tip uh, from uh, St. John Bosco that uh, parents and even teachers can take away on how to deal with that really difficult child. I think to, you know, take a deep breath and try to look at Jesus from the cross gazing at that child, especially ones that are really maybe misbehaving or rude and, and even even vulgar sometimes. And we've had students like that in our lives. And, uh, you know, I've seen transformations. I've, I've seen radical transformations. It takes time. I think, I think one of the things he said, you know, you have to plant seeds in the young. Plant the seeds and God will grow the rest. And sometimes it takes a long time to till a garden. But uh, but we, we know that the Lord's at work. And, and I think mixing that, that firm discipline with, with a genuine, authentic love that comes from our prayer lives and our love for understanding God's love for that person. It, we know that God loves that child. That's the prerequisite to to our activities with them. And that means we need to be prayed up. We need to be reflected. We need to be peaceful. And then we'll we'll be able to discipline with a firmness that's not from our own pride and anger, but but for the good of the person that's being disciplined. And maybe that's that's the key. I think that's what Don Bosco uh, teaches us. And he went to confession too. He knew he wasn't perfect. He was humble. And uh, I think we owe him a debt of gratitude, but also a, a good look, a good, take a good look at him, uh, especially if, if we're dealing with children in the classroom and our own families. I, th- I think he has a lot to teach us about about what it means to, to grow a child. Well, Father Tyone, I want to end uh, our segment uh, with this uh, quote. Um, 
from a St. John Bosco uh, who died on January 31st, 1888, after he conveyed uh, this message. Quote, tell the boys that I shall be waiting for them all in paradise. And I mean, that so much uh, sums up who he was. Amen. Amen. Don Bosco, pray for us. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Father Tayona. I love your perspective on uh, Don Bosco. Uh, thanks for being with us. Father Marcel Tayon, the pastor of St. Thomas More Catholic Parish in Narragansett, Rhode Island, and a longtime Relevant Radio and Morning Air contributor. We need to take a, a short time out when we come back. Personal success coach Dave Duran will uh, tell us about seven ways to inspire your team, your family, and your group. So stay with us on this uh, Wednesday edition of Morning Air here on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Looking at life through a Catholic lens. This is Morning Air. Jump into the conversation. Call 888-914-9149. And welcome back to Morning Air. I'm John Morales along with Glenn and Sarah. Thanks so much for tuning in on this Wednesday morning, February 1st. Our number, if you want to be part of the conversation, 888-914-9149. Now, whether you run an organization or you run a business or are the leader of your family, you always want to keep your team, your family, or group motivated and inspired. You want to make them feel happy that they are part of your team. Joining us live from Fort Myers, Florida, is our longtime Morning Air contributor and personal success coach, Dave Duran, who will share seven ways to inspire your team, your family, and your group. Uh, Dave Duran is an author, speaker, and executive coach. He is the co-founder and executive chairman of Best Version Media and a founder of Lighthouse Catholic Media and DE Media. You can always follow Dave on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Good morning, Dave. Thanks so much for joining us. Great to be with you once again. Uh, happy February. Yeah, happy February. Good to be with you, John. Dave, why is it important uh, to keep uh, our team or our family or our organization um, motivated and inspired? You know, I think just that concept of, <coughs> of leadership in general is an interesting one, that God did not make the world in a way where you have a bunch of individual people who um, kind of collectively decide to move in one direction in cohesion and, <coughs> and inspiration. We need leaders. Uh, every organization that is effective has a leader, um, and that leader's job is to not only help people move in the right direction and take them where they need to go, but to make sure that they're inspired when things are difficult. Because, you know, really anything that is difficult is the thing that requires leadership. Easy stuff, that doesn't really require anything. And it's not really a leadership setting. If you want to say, hey, there's going to be a big party, everybody go. Well, you don't need a leader to take you there. But if you're going to be challenged by something, you're going to go to war literally or metaphorically or build something big, you're going to have to follow somebody into that. And there's going to be times where there's doubts and there's uh, insecurities and inspiration helps overcome those things. Well, uh, Dave, you have seven uh, ways uh, to inspire uh, our team, uh, group or family. Let's talk about the, the first way. Well, I think the first one is to apply faces and emotion to the mission. Um, by the way, th these are not an order of importance, but <clears throat> you even see politicians do this, and they do it effectively. I mean, you can do it as a manipulation, but you'll see 
you know, at the State of the Union address, the president will oftentimes bring a particular person in and they'll recognize that person because they've gone through something that's challenging. And basically what they're saying is that this person is a great example. You should be inspired by them. And of course, in politi politics, it's always in, you know, the reason they were able to do what they did is under my leadership. I mean, there's always that, that veiled thing. But there's, um, they, you know, <clears throat> it's good too when, you know, there's, there's um, even commercials on TV where they, they, they're trying to raise money for a cause and they'll show you the picture or the face of a particular person who could be helped. Of course, that could be done as manipulation if it wasn't real or true. But if it is real or true, well, that's a good thing. You know, you see, you understand. So no matter what it is we're doing, <clears throat> whether servicing people in a simple, um, you know, secular fashion in the workplace, we say to ourselves, who are we helping and why? You know, what is the, what is, how do they feel about that? And then how do you feel about that? You know, people uh, underestimate the value of emotions quite often, and some people overestimate them, and, and doing either one of those things is a bad idea. There is a time and place to amplify emotions, and when it comes to inspiration, it's a time to do that. Maybe um, bringing in like a top producer in a sales organization and recognizing him for his numbers in front of the whole group. Oh, yeah. Those are great things to do. Bring in top performers. And sometimes people get detached. They say, well, <clears throat> the reason they're doing so well is because they're a top performer. I'm not like that. So the savvy leaders are going to be the people who bring in the person who was not a top performer. And they made a change. And that change has now allowed them to be a top performer, a.k.a. you can be like them, too. Those are the types of things that allow people to do to, to say, OK, there's 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 a place for me here. I fit. OK, what about a, a second way to keep folks inspired? Well, we need to let them know that we believe in their ability to perform. This is a very big thing. And if you don't believe in their ability to perform, then you need to replace them. So some people say, well, I, I can't say that because I don't believe in their ability to perform. Well, then I would just say, I don't believe in your ability to recruit. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's a, it's a very funny thing to say that you're going to assemble a team of people <clears throat> and then, you know, you don't believe in them. Now, some people have been, you know, thrust into a leadership role, and so they are, they've, they've taken people over that they may not actually believe in, and there's a slow process of replacement. But oftentimes, uh, there are ordinary people who might have underperformed in the past, where under the proper leadership, really, really start to perform at a super high level, and sometimes nobody ever trusted them. Nobody ever said, I believe that you can get this done. Now, I'm a little hesitant in this whole, I believe in you. I think that if we over-believe in people, we're going to be highly disappointed. But if we do believe that a person has the, um, the, the, the gifts and the tenacity uh, to perform, then I think that you know, it is a good idea to get behind them and let them know that you trust them and that uh, they can get things done. All right. Uh, what about a, a third way uh, to keep uh, people uh, inspired and motivated? Well, we should celebrate their progress and recognize their performance by name. And what does that mean? It means that we, first of all, should be able to measure their progress. So they should be able to measure it so we can see it. This matters because uh, if we don't measure it, we can't really, you know, we, we, it's very difficult to see where we're moving. Mo most progress is subtle. It's very, very, very subtle, especially if you're in a big organization and you're trying to, you know, change some sort of, let's say, retention percentage from... 43% to 44%. And if you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars, this has a radical change on the business in all these positive ways. Well, you're never going to be able to see that if you're not measuring it statistically in some way, shape, or form. But then even the smaller things, when we're dealing with individual things not as grand, if we're talking to a person, we have to be able to identify that progress. I noticed that you did this. Now I notice that you're doing it this way. 
And that performance is excellent because it will allow for us to be able to accomplish this much more, which, by the way, reminds me of how much I believe in your ability to perform and, frankly speaking, is going to help this person in this way. And you can see what I just did there is I tied in applying faces and emotion and believing the person while celebrating their progress and recognizing their performance by name. There's a, a ton of uh, athletes who have gone on to be uh, all-time greats uh, who uh, remember uh, the motivation and the inspiration that they got from their coaches from the time they were uh, little kids uh, that told them, you can do it, uh, you're going to be great, and uh, it goes a long way. It does, and I think that we have to really um, be careful about how we're doing that and whether or not we have this <clears throat> um, uh, detachment from um, the desire to be popular or flatter. See, a lot of people will tell somebody, oh, you can do this and I believe in you, not because they really believe they can do it or the person's demonstrated any real reasons to do it, but because they want to be popular with that person, they want to like that person, they want to flatter that person to get something in return. And this is one of the things that we have to be cautious about because, just like you're saying, John, people remember those things. They remember them. They start to move in different directions because of the coaching that we're providing them and the encouragement we're providing them. So that's one of the reasons that it's so important to um, be generous with encouragement, no doubt about it, um, but to <clears throat> also make sure that we've got some sort of particular uh, something behind that encouragement that doesn't push people in the wrong direction um, or, or misguide them in how we perceive their gifts. All right, Dave, what is the uh, fourth way to inspire our team, organization, or even our family? We need to pick up the energy and set the tone and the mood. See, a lot of people forget about this. They, they, they basically <clears throat> they put it on their team to say, well, it's their job to motivate themselves. Well, yeah, there's no doubt about it. If you are self-motivated, and that's what everybody wants, everybody's always looking for the self-motivated person, even in their, in their recruiting advertising. But if everyone was entirely self-motivated, the world would be a radically different place, and leaders would not really be needed. So it's kind of like ceding part of the responsibility you have as a leader to basically say, I want the people that lead themselves so I don't have to do the leading. I literally worked with a guy one time who said that. He said, um, I'm a high performer. I think I should get promoted and only work with all the high performers who get things done really, really effectively. And I was like, oh my gosh, that is really a very, very funny thing. That is like saying, I want to, to have a team win the Super Bowl and then I want to be credited with their victory in retrospect. It doesn't really work that way. So we have to make sure that we pick up our energy and we know that people are going to actually pay attention to our energy because what we're energized by is going to be more attractive and they're going to be attracted to that energy and they're going to be more willing to commit to something when they see that we apply energy behind things. No question. The tone is set at the top. All right, let's talk about the fifth way to inspire um, our family or team. Well, the fifth way that we inspire our family or team is just we remind them of what the culture is. Now, this, by the way, has a presumption in it and that is to say that there is actually an effective culture that has been established in the first place and that people know about it. If that is not the case, well, that has to be done. But once we do have an effective culture in place, we need to keep it in place. And the way that we keep an effective culture in place is we remind people of what that culture is. You know, there are various ways that we do this actually in, in actual cultures, which I think is an important thing to remember, where there are strong cultures like, you know, national cultures and these sorts of things, family cultures. There's a lot of good things that happen um, to maintain those. So people say, well, I know who I am, I know where I came from, and I know what's important to, to, to not only me, but also to this culture in general. 
And so we do things like, you know, um, a Pledge of Allegiance or the National Anthem. We do things that actually remind people of kind of what we stand for, right? And we, we, we talk about our history and we talk about how we are the home of the brave, the land of the free. Well, the more we remember that, the more we're going to actually behave that way, the more that we're going to actually be inspired to teach others to protect that culture as well, too. Our cultures in our businesses, in our companies, in our organizations um, can, can be, you know, they're, they're not going to have such a grand, profound impact as something like that, but it needs to be there. We actually have a culture in the Catholic Church, too, and it's very important that we, we you know, encourage that culture. That culture, of course, is the need for Christ. There's more to it. The need for salvation, the need for forgiveness, the need to confess, the need to be holy, right? And so when we have those things and people culturally act the same in them, we have a unity that is a very unique thing. And those things are played out in the fact that we are a liturgical uh, church. We, we, have, we have traditions and we have seasons and these things matter. Dave, uh, here in the final moments, uh, the uh, final uh, two ways of uh, inspiring our family, organization, or team. Well, one of them is to discipline in private. And I know that's kind of an interesting thing because it sounds like, well, God, you're going to inspire people by disciplining? Yeah, actually, in a way, discipline says, I care. Discipline says, there is a standard. Discipline says, you're worth correcting because you're going to you know, you need to be the type of person who stays within that standard. But the other thing about disciplining in private is it says, you respect me, you respect my dignity, and others recognize that, you know, you're not calling somebody out publicly so they feel secure in what they're doing. And when people feel secure in what they're doing, they have the absolutely way more motivated. And this, John, is tied to the, the last thing, which is to say thank you. You know, um, thanking people, to express gratitude to somebody for what they did. People like to be appreciated. It is amazing how few people uh, hear somebody say to them, thank you, I recognize you, you're doing great work. And they're thirsty for that sort of thing. And they'll leave um, what otherwise could be a good role because they don't feel appreciated. And they'll go to a place that might not even be as great of a role, but they feel appreciated, so they stick around. Well, here at Relevant Radio, the tone is set at the top. Father Rocky always talks about that attitude of gratitude. So we say thank you, uh, Dave, uh, as always, uh, for being with us and, and for your perspective on uh, this interesting issue. Thanks, John. Thanks so much. Uh, speaker and executive coach Dave Duran, the co-founder and executive chairman of Best Version Media. And now it's time for another episode of Glenn Story Corner. One of our classics today from way back, called The Hospital Window. There were two men, both seriously ill, who shared the same hospital room. One man got a bed next to the room's only window. He was allowed to sit up in his bed for an hour each afternoon to help drain fluid from his lungs. The other man had to spend all his time lying flat on his back. The two roommates quickly bonded and started talking for hours on end. They talked about their lives, their jobs, children, wives... One day, the man furthest from the window expressed how he envied the man near the window. From that day on, the man near the window started to describe all the things he could see outside the window. The window overlooked a lovely park with a lake. Ducks played on the lake while children sailed their model boats. Young lovers walked arm in arm amidst flowers of every color. and a fine view of the city skyline could be seen in the distance. The man on the other bed began to live for those one-hour sessions where he could hear and visualize the world outside the hospital room. That one hour of every day would 
broaden his world and he'd be enlivened by all the activity and the color of the world outside. One afternoon, the man by the window described a parade passing by. Though the other man could not hear the band, he could visualize it as the man made a vivid description looking out the window. Days and weeks passed by. One morning, the nurse arrived to examine the condition of the two patients. She found the lifeless body of the man by the window. The man had peacefully passed away during his sleep. The nurse sadly called the hospital attendants to take the body away. The other man grieved the death of his roommate. But as the days passed, he started missing the way his old roommate described the view out the window. In a hope to have a peek out the window and see that beautiful world outside, the other man asked if he could be moved next to the window. The nurse happily made the switch. As soon as he was comfortable in his new bed, the man slowly and painfully propped himself up to take his first look at the world outside. The nurse watched as the man attempted to sit on the bed after weeks. But as he strained to slowly turn and look out the window, he was stunned to see a blank wall outside the window. The man, now agitated, asked the nurse what could have made his roommate lie to him about the view. Well, there's nothing to see from here. Where are all the wonderful things he saw? He described everything so vividly. Is this some new construction here? Why did he give me such vivid details that don't even exist? The nurse shook her head and answered, Perhaps he just wanted to encourage you and make you happy. You see, your roommate was totally blind. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, as indeed you do. As always, thanks so much, Glenn. Really do appreciate it. Want to remind you, you can download any of Glenn's Story Corners or Morning Air Conversations that you might want to listen to again or share with others online at RelevantRadio.com or just go to our Relevant Radio mobile app, go to Shows on Demand, and download our podcast. And so... That'll do it for this Wednesday edition of Morning Air for Glenn Leverance, uh, producer Sarah Tafoya, Gabby Burke, our entire Morning Air team. I'm John Morales. Thanks so much for joining us. Let your light shine before all. God bless America. We'll see you Thursday on the next Morning Air. It is uh, the Feast of the Presentation and Groundhog Day, so stay tuned for tomorrow's episode. The Patrick Madrid Show is straight ahead.